All right, so we continue our study this morning in biblical theology. If you're just joining us, welcome. Um, And if you're just joining us, I want to kind of give a recap of where we've been up to this point uh, so that you can just kind of have some footing about uh, where we're at and where we plan on heading uh, this morning. If you remember, we started uh, where the Bible starts, and that is with God. In that first lesson, we looked at how God is both the author of creation and also the king of creation. He created the world and everything that is in it, and he rules over that world that he created and everything in it. And of all his creation, we looked at the reality that man is the pinnacle of that creation because man has been made in the image of God. We're the only part of his creation that has been uniquely created in that way. And as his image bearers, as we saw there in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we were given the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue and have dominion over the rest of God's creation. And in so doing, in so fulfilling that, we would both reflect the image of God and also spread the image of God throughout the earth. And then we looked at how after God created everything, He proclaimed it all good. It said God looked at everything that he made and he said it was very good. So everything was good up to that point. Adam and Eve were walking in fellowship with God, resting in his presence. And if you remember, we talked about this aspect of rest being the goal of creation. Man and God in perfect fellowship with one another. However, as we saw, we were not content with being in the image of God. Rather, we wanted to be like God himself. And so as we read through those uh, first three chapters of Genesis, and in particular in chapter three, we saw that we as, as finite creatures, we believed the lie that the serpent brought to us and called into question that infinite wisdom of God the creator. And think about the reality of that, that that one act of rebellion has led to everything that we see this day. Everything that's wrong all traces back to that one act of rebellion, plunging humanity and subsequently the rest of creation into death and destruction. We looked there at how every relationship was fractured at that point, right? Our relationship with God was fractured, our relationship with one another was fractured, and our relationship to the creation was also fractured. And we saw how death spread to all men. If you remember, Desmond walked us through those early chapters in Genesis, and we heard that constant refrain where it was, you know, so-and-so lived this many years, and then he died, right? So we just kind of heard that echoed over and over again. And we were reminded of God's swift justice in the flood, And then as we continue to work from there, uh, we looked at the Tower of Babel and the condition of every man's heart since the fall, and that was not to make much of God and to glorify him, but rather to make much of and to glorify ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. Uh, and, And you see that in all society. If you just kind of view things as they are right now, man is hungry to make a name for himself in some capacity, in one capacity or another. Some are more outright and visible, others are much more subtle. But nonetheless, the desire of the human heart is to exalt 
self. So it was, it was tragic as we, we just saw the beauty of those first couple chapters and then to see the degradation and the fall and everything um, and, and corruption and decay. But thankfully, all was not lost in the midst of this cosmic calamity of our rebellion against God. As we remember in his infinite mercy there in Genesis 3, rather than destroying all of mankind as we deserve, God made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we saw how that dimly pointed forward to the coming of Christ and what he would accomplish. And then last week, we began looking at the different covenants that God was making. And in particular, Desmond walked us through the Noahic covenant. That is God's covenant with Noah. Okay? And so with that brief recap this morning, we're going to be looking at God's covenant with Abraham. And you can see there on your note sheet, I just have one subtitle underneath that because that's the focus of this whole lesson is to look on this uh, Abrahamic covenant. So Desmond mentioned this last week, the uh, definition that um, Vaughn Roberts gave for a covenant. So just kind of reminding us of what that is. Robert said this, that a covenant refers to a solemn commitment. God commits himself to his people by making binding promises. Uh, sometimes they are unilateral. That means that God promises to act unconditionally. <clears throat> but often they're bilateral and conditional. That is, God expects his people uh, to play their part, to make their promises to obey him. And those covenants are sealed in blood, and they're given with a sign that is designed to be a reminder of them. And we'll see that definition fleshed out a bit more as we now look at God's covenant with Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham, name is Abram at that point, and he promises to ultimately reverse the effects of his judgment after Babel. Although it's not said explicitly there, as you read throughout the rest of the scriptures, that's what you see happening here. He, he declares his intention to gather together the scattered people of the world and to bless them. And his words to Abraham are the first clear statement of God's promises. And listen, these promises to Abraham dominate the rest of the Bible. Right? You can trace everything back to this, and you can see the outworking of that as you read throughout the rest of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, John Stott wrote this about the Abrahamic covenant. He said, It may be truly said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. And I don't think that is an exaggeration. I think Stott nails that right on the head. So, Let's take a look now at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. And could I get a volunteer to read that for us? Okay, Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I will curse. <coughs> and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from 
Aran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, thanks. All right, so you'll notice there um, at least three elements to the promises that Abraham received, right? You have the land, a people, and the reality that he would be blessed. And in being blessed, he would be a blessing also to the nations. And before we look at these three elements, I want to highlight um, just the, the grace of God that we see here in his covenant to Abraham. God gives Abraham this promises in Genesis 12. And then in, in Genesis 15, which is about 25 years later, I want you to look with me at what is being said in Genesis 15. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 here. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So, so you, can, you can see the tension that's going on here, right? You have Genesis 12. Here's the promise, right? Your offspring, I'm going to bless. And, and Genesis 15, about 25 years later, Abram's thinking, okay, I don't have any offspring, right? I, I've, I've got nothing to fulfill that promise that you said that you were, you were going to fulfill. So you can feel the tension that is there. But I want you to look at how God answers him. In verses 4 and 5, he says, And behold... The word of the Lord came to him. This man, referring to Eliezer of Damascus, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Right? So there's God reminding Abram about the promise that he made there back in Genesis 12. And then Abram answers with a verse that's quoted four times in the New Testament, and it's the foundation upon which we, which we stand um, in verse 6 here in Genesis 15. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it, referring to Abram's belief, he counted it to him as righteousness, okay? That, that's a quotation that shows up four times over in the New Testament, 
justification by faith alone, by Abraham believing what God had said. Now, what's even more astounding to me uh, than verse 6 is God doesn't just stop right there after giving Abraham the affirmation of his promise with the stars, but he goes further than that in strengthening the faith of this man. And I want you to look with me, picking up in verse 7. And I'm going to read down through the rest of this chapter. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generations, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting account there. I remember a few years back, um, somebody asked R.C. Sproul the, the famous question, if, what, what's your favorite Bible verse? <laughs> that's a dangerous question, right? And, you know, R.C. was reluctant to answer because he thought, you know, how do I begin to pick a, a favorite Bible verse? But he said that if he was pressed to pick one, he would pick Genesis 15, verse 17. Now, that's an unusual verse um, to have as your favorite, right? But I'm going to let R.C. explain why, and I think this will shed some great light on God's faithfulness and his covenant to Abraham and why R.C. was clinging uh, to that verse. Here's what R.C. said. He said, when covenants were made in the ancient Near East, certain rights would accompany the agreement in order to signify what would happen if one or both parties failed to live up to their end of the pact. One common ritual involved dismembering animals and then laying the pieces in two rows side by side with a path in between. The individuals making the covenant would then pass between the animals and invoke a curse upon themselves if they broke the agreement. In performing this rite, both parties were in effect saying, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, may the destruction that befell these animals also be upon my head. As if his word of promise were not enough, the Lord finishes his encounter with Abram in Genesis 15 with the very same rite. And a theophany, a visible revelation of the divine, God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, a form similar to the pillar of fire he will use to guide the Israelites toward Canaan centuries later. 
Fire symbolizes the Lord's glory, further displaying the Almighty's character. And then he says this, notice that it is God alone who passes between the animals. Abram is not invited to participate. Here we have the Lord alone swearing by himself that he will see to it that his promises will come to pass. This sworn oath is promissory and self-maledictory, invoking death to himself if it is not fulfilled, giving his people confidence that he will accomplish all that he pledges. It is an unparalleled manifestation of the Lord's grace, for he promises to care for his loyal servant and his descendants forever. Now, that is an awesome just explanation of what can be a very difficult passage if you don't understand um, those type of things that were going on in the ancient Near East and how covenants uh, were made. So we see the grace of God being displayed there, that God swears by himself that he will fulfill all that he has promised to Abraham. And I want to give you kind of a sneak peek, jump forward here into the New Testament a little bit, to where this is all heading, and that is to Christ. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and you'll see some similarities between what we just read there in Genesis 15 and what the writer of Hebrews brings out here in chapter 6. So Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, and if I can have somebody read that for us. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all things their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Okay, so you see what the writer of Hebrews does. He reaches back to that covenant with Abraham, and he uses that to help us to see the surety that we have in Jesus Christ, that God gave a promise to Abraham, and then he puts an oath on top of that promise. Well, we know it's impossible for God to lie. The writer of Hebrews says he did this so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That even though it's impossible for God to lie, the fickleness of our faith is manifested at times, isn't it? Right? We, we don't always hold fast to the promises of God like we ought to. Right? That's a daily battle. And so God condescends to our weakness and puts this oath on top of his promise so that by two unchangeable things, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And God was doing the same thing with Abraham there in Genesis 15. He was showing him that I gave you that promise. Now come look at the stars as a visible reminder for you of the promises that I have made to you. And I would say, that there's a similar, similarity there for us as well in the Lord's Supper, right? That, that we visibly hold the bread and the cup, and these are reminders, right? They help us to see 
the promises of God are real. Just as I'll chew this and I'll take this in and I'll engage in the Lord's Supper with all my senses, with sight, smell, and taste, touch, so are the promises of God true for us. So God's seeking to build up Abraham and remind him of his covenant faithfulness to him. Now, as we, as we look at these three elements back in Genesis here that God promised to Abraham, that of land, people, and blessing, I, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of understanding the dual nature or the two-pronged nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? It's vital that we see this properly because if we don't, we will misinterpret other portions of Scripture okay? to see this dual nature of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'll flesh out what I, what I mean by that. There's some really good resources. Desmond has uh, mentioned a couple already. Um, Pascal Denault's book, The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology, is really good. It hits on this dual nature of the Abrahamic uh, covenant. But I encourage you to check that out, to, to study that a little bit uh, more, and I have other resources that I can give to you as well. Uh, but I'm going to try to just, in a short time, kind of synopse it for you and help you to see why it's, why it's important. Okay? Of those, uh, of those three promises, we want to see how those three promises have both a physical and a spiritual side. And how, how do we come to that conclusion? We do so by looking at the manner in which these promises are fulfilled. As we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, we learn that there's both a physical and spiritual fulfillment to each of these promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? The same promises have two distinct fulfillments. And I want you to see this. You can jot this down on your notes if you would like. I've left you ample room, hopefully. If not, you can flip over and use the back side of your sheet. Okay? So you have, again, natural fulfillments and spiritual fulfillments. Okay? You have a natural seed of Abraham and you have a spiritual seed of Abraham. Now, there can be in that natural seed, also the spiritual seed. And when I say that, I mean believing Jews, right? Jews who really believe the promises of God and were looking forward to the promise of the Messiah, right? So we would say that Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are saved the same way. That is by faith. We saw that with Abraham in Genesis 15, right? By faith in looking, the Old Testament saints in looking forward to the promise and its fulfillment in Christ, and New Testament saints looking back at the reality of what Christ has accomplished. Okay? In the Abrahamic covenant, you have types and shadows under the natural fulfillment, and then you also have spiritual realities under that spiritual fulfillment. Then you have a condition, we're going to get to that in just a second, under the natural fulfillment. And then under the spiritual fulfillment, you have an unconditional uh, guarantee. Now, let's start first here with these two types of seeds. And another, that's another way of saying offspring, okay, uh, that are represented in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Here in Genesis 17, 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, 
and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Again, from the Old and New Testament, we learn the double fulfillment of this promise that we see here in Genesis 17, 7. So another way that you can kind of look at that is that's what we mean by dual nature or a two-pronged nature. You have the Abrahamic covenant, you have spiritual descendants and natural descendants. So let's start first with the natural descendants of Abraham. We see this in Genesis 17.10 as God continues to go on here. And he says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so there you have the natural fulfillment and the condition that was upon the offspring of Abraham, right? They, they had to be circumcised or else they would be cut off from the covenant people of God. So circumcision was the sign that they were in the Abrahamic covenant, that they were partakers of this, of this covenant. And we see that throughout uh, the Old Testament of this seed building, Israel, the people of God, and uh, the necessity of keeping that uh, circumcision, which shouldn't be surprising because you get into the New Testament, right? You hear a lot about this covenant of circumcision, right? It's a big deal, right? The, the Old Testament saints understood in order for us to be in this Abrahamic covenant, circumcision is a must. However, you also have the spiritual offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And this verse is so important. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Vital. <laughs> you you got to get that. Right? If you understand that, man, it helps you interpret the rest of the scripture faithfully. Okay? So this offspring that would come from Abraham, now we know naturally he had all these offspring. But all of that offspring, that, that lineage, had to be preserved to bring about this one. This one offspring who is Christ. Who is the faithful member of in the community of God's people. The only one, the sinless one, the one who would actually fulfill what God had promised. And then also, and so, so here's kind of where we are in this equation, right? Genesis 3.29. And if you are Christ, now listen to this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, you may sit here, and I don't know everybody's lineage and where you guys come from, but um, Audrey's the only one I know in our, in our church that is Jewish or, or by lineage. Um, so I don't know if anybody else is, but I'm a Gentile. So I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, as I look back at that covenant with Abraham, and I look back at those promises, I recognize that from a natural perspective, I'm not in that covenant community. But it was always pointing forward to this one Christ, and those promises were fulfilled in him. And because we are in him, you are Abraham's offspring, Amen. heirs according to promise. 
you're the true offspring of Abraham. As Paul argues in Romans 2, he says, a Jew is not one who is one merely outwardly, but one who is inwardly. Not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart, which is what God was always interested in right from the very beginning. So as you read through the scriptures, you have this understanding there's a natural seed of Abraham, okay? In the Old Testament, you read it, it's Israel. We see that and we notice as we, as we read through the Old Testament, we see all the failings and all the, the wanderings of, of, of the people of Israel, but that lineage is kept all the way until it, it is fulfilled in Christ, and it had to be that way, right? It's kept all that way. And don't you love how the Bible is just not shy to put man's sinfulness on full display, right? So that your hope is never set on where you've come from or who you belong to outside of Christ. It seeks to just lift him up, exalt him, and every other man is shown to be what he truly is. And that is because Christ is the center of all these things. So you have Abraham's seed, both a natural seed and a spiritual seed. And like I said, that um, those who are naturally united to Abraham can also be spiritually united to uh, Christ or, or, and with Abraham by faith, by believing the promise that, that God had given. Okay, So that's important to see. Now, in addition to that, in, in addition to those two types of seeds, there are two types of fulfillments in regard to the other Abrahamic promises. These are the shadows of the old covenant and the realities of the new covenant. Okay, so you can jot this down also if you would like. Okay, under that Abrahamic covenant, you had natural shadows and spiritual realities. God fulfilled the promises of Abraham in two distinct ways. First, the Lord brought about the fulfillments of the natural promises, which included Isaac, right? He just told him, Eliezer of Damascus, he's not going to be the heir. You're going to have a, a son, and he's referring to Isaac. And so you have the fulfillment of these natural promises, which included Isaac, the physical nation of Israel, and Canaan, right? So they were, they were headed somewhere. These people were headed somewhere into this, to this promised land. But later, as we continue to read the scriptures, in the fullness of times, as Galatians says, God fulfilled the spiritual promises which are found in the realities of the new covenant. And those spiritual fulfillments include Jesus Christ, the true offspring of Abraham, all those who are in Christ by faith, and the heavenly rest, which is found in Christ and will be made completely manifest in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so you have both the, uh, the natural shadows of that and the spiritual realities. You have a people, the natural descendants of Abraham under the old covenant. In the new covenant, you have the true people of God united by faith to Christ. And you have this people headed somewhere in the old covenant to Canaan, which is a shadow pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth, that true place of rest for the people of God where all the enemies of God are banished. So helpful when you're reading through that and you see the conflict 
that the people of Israel have in getting into the land and remaining in that land that they are in. And under the new covenant, Christ comes, defeats all of his enemies, takes his people, brings us into that land where all the enemies of God are gone, including ourselves and all the sin that remains within us. And he brings us into that place of eternal rest. Nevertheless, the natural fulfillments of the Old Testament foreshadow the spiritual fulfillments of the New Testament. So those natural fulfillments consisting of the temporary types and shadows, they did not fulfill the eternal and spiritual promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Isaac was the seed of Abraham, and, and what a blessing that was to Abraham. No, but, but no matter how blessed a child he was, he could not compare to Jesus Christ, who is the true fulfillment of the promised seed. But he was necessary to get there as God had ordained that. Likewise, the rest of the natural fulfillments come short of answering the spiritual promises given to Abraham. Although the nation of Israel was God's outward people, uh, they cannot compare to the true Israel of God, which is what Paul says in Galatians 6.16, who are the saints made up of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So those types and shadows are important to see as you work your way through the scriptures. And then the other aspect of this covenant was both its unconditional and its conditional nature, which I've kind of hit on um, a little bit already. You have the conditional nature of it and the unconditional uh, nature of it. So I want to talk about that for just, just a minute here. Not under that, though. <laughs> Um, so go to, oh, this is why I had it, because it's a little bit lengthier. Go to Genesis chapter 17. And verses 9 through 14, if I can have somebody read that for us. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, good. So you see the conditional nature there of the Abrahamic covenant in the covenant of circumcision. Now, keep your place there in Genesis and flip over with me to Romans. Chapter 4, and you have the spiritual side of the Abrahamic covenant promised to Abraham and his spiritual seed on the basis of faith, which we learn from the scriptures is a gift from God to us. It's without any conditions, right? Uh, there's, there's nothing we have done in and of ourselves to enter into this 
this covenant that we have now with God. So Romans 4, I'm tempted to read the whole thing, but I won't. So let me just pick out some, some parts here. Look with me at verses 13 and 14, which says, For the promise to Abraham and his, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. And then drop down with me to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then then drop down to verse 18. In hope, Abraham, that is, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb no belief made him waver concerning the promise of God but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. A really helpful, helpful passage there. So to keep from breaking the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham's children had to be circumcised. And if they broke the covenant, they would cease to be a part of the covenant people of God. However, we learn that Abraham was counted righteous prior to his circumcision, right? By faith, he believed the promises of God, and afterwards, he was circumcised. So regarding the spiritual inheritance Abraham was able to receive it by faith without obeying any condition. Moreover, although Abraham's natural seed were required to be circumcised, circumcision has nothing to do with Abraham's spiritual seed. That is circumcision in the outward, in the outward way. Uh, it was always pointing forward to the reality of the need for the circumcision of the heart. And Galatians 5, 6 it says this, when, from where does this blessing come then, upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham for righteousness. I'm sorry, this is Romans 4. Um, how was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Okay? And then Galatians talks about that as well. Okay? So again, by faith... Apart from circumcision, here's Jesus' testimony about Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And by faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham looked for that true spiritual rest. Not, not to the physical land of Canaan, but to that which Canaan pointed forward to. And by faith, 
he became the father of many nations as the gospel continues to go out and gather together people from every tribe and tongue, nation, and language. So we see there that these two distinct seeds are represented within the Abrahamic covenant. And this is in agreement with the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, verses 22 through 31. So let's take a look at that passage as well. Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 31. And here's what the scripture says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. See the two Jerusalems, right? Two Jerusalems being spoken of here. The earthly one and the heavenly one. Right? And the one was a type of the other and pointed forward to that place that we are headed. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, in, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. There again was where I was, I was telling you that those who were the natural seed of Abraham could also be the spiritual seed of Abraham depending on their belief in that promise that was, that was given. Verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay? Very important there. And you notice the context of, of Galatians there, this focus on circumcision and the need to adhere to those things. Peter. Yes. Yes. Uh, and now he applies it to the Galatians. That's right. Amen. Yeah, so it's really helpful as you kind of get that framework in your mind and you see how the New Testament authors go back and they pull these Old Testament quotes and apply them to the people of God, the true people of God, those who are believing in the promises that the Old Testament pointed to, namely Christ. So... Um, Hopefully that's, that's helpful as you try to, try to get that. I know that if you've not thought through that a lot, that was probably a lot to, to give to you. Um, but I hope it's food for thought, and you'll even go back and listen and think through um, these things a little bit more. Because truly, I, I, I just want to say that they will help you 
read the Bible and understand it correctly when, when you understand this dual nature of the Abrahamic covenant. As Stott said, it, it is that which the rest of the scripture points forward to. So you have those, those things going on there. So just to kind of conclude that thought, circumcision was a requirement and a sign under uh, the old covenant for the natural seed of Abraham. Uh, for the natural Jew, the Abrahamic covenant was conditional. On the other hand, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional for Abraham and his spiritual seed. Uh, because Christ has fulfilled all the requirements of the covenant and we are in him. We share in the blessing of Abraham and that which it was pointing forward to. Now, as we conclude this lesson, one of the key aspects that's manifest in the Abrahamic covenant, um, which I've touched on already, but I just want to highlight once more, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. As I mentioned, Genesis 15.6 is referred to four times in the New Testament. And in particular, in the book of Galatians, um, we see the glory of, of justification by faith alone. The Christians that were being written to in those in, in that region of Galatia, were being led astray by false teaching uh, that suggests that it's not enough to believe in Christ, but they also needed to obey the Jewish law and if they were to be right with God. And so Paul counters that teaching by pointing them to Abraham, right? He, he's, he's kind of exhibit A. Paul says, okay, let's take a look at our forefather according uh, to the faith. So look with me. Backing up now in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then, here's another pivotal passage, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Man, that sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? When they're coming to him and he says, don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Right? They were pinning everything on that. And John says, God's able to raise up stones for children for Abraham. And then verse 8 here in Galatians 3 says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then here's why. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law, 
is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, here's just a very helpful summation of this whole Abrahamic covenant discussion, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's futile to try to hold on to any works of the law, anything that we could do to try to be made right right with God. And it's foolish to think that naturally we can be in a right relationship with God. All of us, both Jew and Gentile, Paul argues in Romans 3, are, are under the curse. We're under the wrath of God. None has done good. No, not one. But in Christ, we are made righteous. And in Christ, we are the true heirs of Abraham. So just to conclude this, and as we head next week into looking at the partial fulfillment of the kingdom, um, I want to remind us of how we started the class, and that was by giving a definition of the kingdom of God that Vaughn Roberts laid out, which was God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and therefore enjoying God's blessing. And as you think about that Abrahamic covenant, and you see the dual nature of that, I want you to think about this. You have God's people, okay, Abraham's natural descendants, in God's place, they were heading forward to that promised land of Canaan. They were under God's rule and therefore enjoying God's blessing. However, they often rebelled against the rule of God and therefore they didn't enjoy his blessing. They were kicked out of the land that God had given them to inherit. But under the new covenant, we have God's people, Christ and all who are in him, in God's place, headed forward to that true promised land, under God's rule, and therefore enjoying God's blessing. And Christ was always under the rule of God. He always did that which was pleasing in the sight of his Father. And that righteousness is credited to us. And therefore, we can be assured that we will always enjoy the blessing of God because we are in him. That's the blessing of being spiritual descendants of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? All right, let me close in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for uh, this time of study in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of this Abrahamic covenant and that we would be able to trace as we, as we read your word, that we'd be able to trace the storyline of your word and to see it properly. Lord, help us. We, we, we want to give ourselves to the study of your word so that we can know you more intimately. We can understand the wonders and the glory of the gospel more intimately. And so please help us uh, to that end to understand these things rightly. We thank you for this time in your word and pray that you would continue to bless us as we dwell upon the things that we have read this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys.